We're all having cat problems. Welcome back to yes. Cat Problems Corner with Hannah, Sarah, and Meredith. <laughs> Wrong podcast. <laughs> Sometimes we talk about true crime because we're actually true crime trying. Uh, a podcast where the plans align and three mm-hmm. friends chat about true crime, astrology, and any other cats. weird bullshit, which <laughs> definitely includes cats. There's a weird motherfucker. Yes, it does. The weird bullshit is uh, happening. That we get into this podcast and it is often cats. We are your host, Hannah. Sarah. <laughs> I didn't hear you say oh. Hannah at all. <laughs> all right, well. Sarah. <laughs> and Meredith. <laughs> Meanwhile, Otter's like walking around with an Andy's oh. wrapper in his mouth. Oh, no. I was going to say, and various assorted cats also come on this podcast. Yes. So sorry. I'm just like, what is going on over here? Anyway. Welcome. Two, I can only continue to be a clusterfuck of episode 41. Woo! Woo! What you drinking, Sarah? This is the cherry liqueur of sorts that Scott brought back from Germany mm. with some a little bit of grenadine, some tonic, and lime. Okay. So it's a little sparkly, a little effervescent, lots of cherry punchy flavors with nice. lime, like cherry lime ricky. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's good. Num, num, num. It's dangerous, though, because I know how much booze went into this thing. And, and it's juice. <laughs> it is drinkable. It's juice. Yeah. I have yeah. a nice nine percenter, but let me... Get through the story before I make it an 18er. Okay. <laughs> housekeeping. housekeeping. One housekeeping. Ding, ding. And it kind of messes with next week's episode. Okay. <laughs> but we have 14 states <gasps> left to get our collective 50 states. And so I decided that I was going to start doing cases for each love of these it. 14 states. Oh, yeah, to get them on board. Right? And so I found one for Arizona because we hadn't yet gotten a listener from Arizona, even though I've got family Hello. in Arizona. But today I checked analytics and we have an Arizona listener, so it kind of messes that up. But I'm still doing an Arizona case next week. All right. But welcome. Anyways, welcome, Arizona. We Hello. will give you something next week. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, we will. All right. Hopefully you're not from Page, Arizona. Yeah, we might have. We, we, <laughs> no. didn't, we didn't stay in Page very long. We didn't have enough time to call it a shithole. Hopefully you're not yeah. from Barstow. <laughs> 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 I just mean that as a human being. Sure. Please don't be from Barstow. Get out. <laughs> what are you, you doing with yourself? Get anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Fresno. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well. What I have for you is The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs Urban Legend and the true crime no. stories behind it. So, this is from the Folklore Archives of the University of California, Berkeley. Okay. And so, this is the Babysitter and the Man Upstairs Urban Legend as recorded by UC Berkeley. So, you know, whatever. Fuck them. <laughs> but you know pretentious smart whatever here it goes and it's told like a 14 year old is telling the story so imagine 
Can you do a 14-year-old girl accent? Let me try, but it might be really annoying. That's okay. Okay, so there was this girl babysitting in a two-story house in New York, and she received a phone call from a man laughing, and he tells her she better go and check on the children. Ah, She doesn't believe him, and so she goes back to watch TV. She receives a second call, and the man with a deeper voice is laughing and tells her she better check the children upstairs. And then she gets scared and she calls the police and the police tell her that if it happens again, they're going to trace the next call. So the third time he called and he was laughing and she got more scared. So the police called her back and tell her to leave the house right away without going upstairs or anything. And the police come over and they tell her that the call was coming from inside the house and the man Mm. had been calling her after he killed all the children upstairs. No! It sounds like one of those copypasta, creepypasta It's totally things. a copypasta, creepypasta thing, but, like, the calls coming from inside the house is definitely Ooh. a creepypasta for Sharsies. Mm-hmm. Also a trope in um, movies, but anyway. That reminds me of the babysitter who came home and the kids were, like, afraid of going into their room because there was a clown, like, thing sitting ah! there. No. And the babysitter was, like, calling the parents saying, yeah, this, like, clown figure that you have is really scaring the kids. Like, can I put it in the garage? And they're like, get out of the house. We don't have a clown don't figure. A fucking clown figure. Oh, not that fuck weird. no. <laughs> fuck that, Pennywise. <laughs> yeah, try again, buddy. Yeah. Yeah, oh. so, babysitting. I've never done it, so I don't know. Have you ever babysat? Mm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Outside of family? Yep. No. Wait, no. Yeah. I used to babysit for a little girl that lived down the street from us when her parents wanted to go have a date night. And it was just like like four houses down. And I think I was like 14 or something like that. Yeah. And, and really it was just she was already in bed. Oh, Yeah. And then they were just going out for, like, drinks or, you know, a movie. So if something happened, CPS wouldn't be called on them. No, no. uh -uh. (laughs) And, like, my parents were literally just, you know, just four houses down. So it wasn't a big deal. But, yeah, it was good for, like, 20 bucks, I think, is what I get. And they would be gone for just a couple of hours, so... Wow, not bad for a 14-year-old. I did read a lot of the Babysitter's Club books, but never had any desire to babysit. There's a very good podcast called The Babysitter's Club Club, and it's about two guys in their 30s that go back and read all the Babysitter Club books and then (gasps) discuss them. (laughs) Really? I think it's actually called something different now because I'm behind, and they've they've read all the Babysitter Club books at this point, so they're doing something else, but it's excellent. So I'm just going to throw that out there for everybody who needs something and if that podcast would like to mention our podcast on their podcast i would be ever so grateful i don't even think i'm saying the right name for them anymore but the babysitter's club club was what they used to be called anywho that is the basis of the babysitter and the man upstairs and modern folklore scholars officially label this as an urban legend which in academia land an urban legend is a secondhand story that expresses underlying anxieties of the time and contains moral messages otter wants to open the door yep <laughs> i was waiting for him you're gonna do He's it like, what's in this door like there's more doors <laughs> more door more door <laughs> Or if you're a Game of Thrones fan, Hodor. Hodor. (laughs) So when this urban legend was first being passed around in like around the 1960s, there were a lot of social anxieties at the time. And so there were parents Mm -hmm. worried about the safety of their children when they leave them 
at home under the care of babysitters. Mothers were apprehensive about leaving home for work. Did he go in the closet? He opened it. (gasps) Good job! You met your New Year's resolution! It was a little bit easier because there's a bag, but like... Oh my god! I thought it was a jar. No. Well, now he's stuck. <laughs> he's out. Oh, he's, he's out. Over there. Otter. Yeah, you get to stay in there now. Good job, boy. He opened it. Oh, my God. Good job, so buddy. Smart. I have definitely door, though, shut for escape. the cats in my closet all day long while I was at work. But Oops. But I, it's happened. It's their fault. Mm-hmm. So mothers were apprehensive about leaving home for work and leaving their children in the care of others. Fathers were frustrated by their decreasing authority. <laughs> I know and that one I just kind of was like mm, fucking suck it patriarchy suck society was growing uneasy about girls accelerating rejection of conventional feminine expectations and Good. the girls themselves had their own insecurities about the dangers they may face in their pursuit of independence Okay, so it's a stressful time and sure. you know Sure, all this well and good, and it definitely says something about society and what the 60s were like, but Mm -hmm. there's also more than a grain of truth to this urban legend. And for babysitters in Columbia, Missouri, that was a very dangerous place to work during the late 1940s and early 1950s. And I'm not going that far back in time for a second. Don't get used to it. All right, so in 1950, Janet Christman, I hope it's Christman, I was going to look this up beforehand, it could be Christman, but I don't want to say Christ that much, <laughs> so I'm going to go with Christman. It's like Christmas. Yeah, right? It's not, Mer- it's not Christmas. Christmas. <laughs> Although maybe I'm going to start Merry saying Christmas. that. Merry Christmas. Have you seen those videos? No. There's a video of like, they posted over whatever like silly thing that's happening, but it's a woman trying to say Merry Christmas or something, and she goes, Merry Crim- Merry Christmas, Merry-, Merry Chrysler, Merry, <laughs> Merry Chrysler. <laughs> yeah. Just like a bunch of silly things. I love it. I love it. All right. Oh, that's well, great. Janet Chrisman was 13 years old in 1950. Uh, she was the oldest child of Charles and Lula Christman and had two younger sisters. Her parents owned Ernie's Cafe and Steakhouse, where they made a comfortable living and were respected and well-liked by the townsfolk. Janet was an eighth grader at Jefferson Junior High School, where she was remembered as being outgoing and intelligent. She also had a knack for music and enjoyed playing the piano and singing in the church choir. Overall, she sounded like a like a real go-getter and willing to put in the work in order to get whatever she wanted. And so on March 18th, 1950, what Janet wanted was to buy a burgundy-colored suit for the Easter holiday. Hmm. Burgundy's not really an Easter color. Nah, man, but burgundy is a great color. I'm... It is, truly. She's definitely... There'll be a picture of her on the website. If I saw her on the street, I would have said she was 19. She definitely didn't look 13. Okay. Okay. And she was also maybe mature for her age, just in okay. general. Like, that's just her personality. But burgundy's a great color. No, it's not yes. Eastery, but yeah. I love jewel tones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Same, same. Yeah. They're good. I don't really like pastels, so I'm with Janet here on the burgundy and not like the pale pink. Yeah, at least it's not like she's wearing black for Easter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which is what I did one whatever. year. <laughs> <laughs> it's a call out. No, no, I did that once one year. Anyway, so instead of going to a dance with her friends, Janet took a babysitting job instead. And she often babysat for two local families, the Mueller's and the Romax. And the Romax were eager to use Janet's services that evening. 
Ed and Anne Romack had recently moved to a rural, isolated home on the outskirts of Columbia, much like the family that Meredith babysat for. Anne was also pregnant, and in combination with moving and having a toddler already, Ed and Anne were ready for a night out. Yes. To themselves, without the toddler and everything else. (laughs) And they were looking forward to playing cards with friends. So game night, which we haven't nice. had a game night in a long time. We got to fix that. Yeah, we got to do that. I did send you the murder game. Oh, Ooh. we haven't seen each other yet because I've been struggling, but that's all right. Stop struggling so I can give you your Christmas and birthday gift. <laughs> oh, here, let me sneak peek it. This is one of your Christmas gifts, but it's not wrapped yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, Yours is sitting right here off camera. <laughs> awesome. I did send the Murder at a Dive Bar for your next game night. Nice. We had a lot of fun playing that game, so I hope that you guys have a lot of fun playing that game as well. Is it well. going to make me second guess dive bars? No. Not at all. Oh, okay. okay, good. Nope, nope. It just it was the owner of the bar who got murdered, and then you got to solve it. Okay. It's a fun game to play. It's a beginner level, which is good because it's supposed to only take 40 minutes and it took us like two and a half hours. We're beginner detectives at a dive bar. You know, we're going to be under the influence. I think you guys will be more successful than my team was over a very drunken, fun Thanksgiving. But Oh, yeah. We will see. Drunken. The drunken part, you had equal amounts of fun. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But... Anywho, sorry. Drunken games. All right. Well, the Romax might probably have a couple drinks too. Not Anne. She's pregnant. Well, it was the 50s. but It was <laughs> the 50s. Maybe Anne had a drink too. I don't know. Some barbiturates will help even you out. Don't worry. Calm down. It was, the weather was like really bad, but they were going to go ahead with their evening and get out of the house. Fuck yeah. If you got a babysitter and you can get the fuck out of your house, go. out. Mm-hmm. So Janet arrived at the Romax house at 7.30 p.m. Also, like Meredith's gig, three-year-old Gregory was already asleep. So it seemed like it was going to be a nice, easy babysitting gig. Mm-hmm. Before leaving, Ed showed Janet a shotgun that was in the hallway closet and showed her how to use it. Well, it's the 50s. It's the 50s. They were also um, on the outskirts of town. It was rural and isolated, so that might also be part of it. He also told her to keep the front and back doors locked, and which you had to actually say in the 50s. (laughs) Yeah. And if for some reason someone showed up at the house, she was to turn on the porch light and only answer the door to people that she knew. Sure. And so while Janet was getting told the to-dos before the Romax left, over at the Chrisman residence, they received a phone call from Robert Mueller, not that Robert Mueller, who wanted to know if Janet was available to babysit that night. And he was told that he was too late and Janet was already at the Romax. And there's yeah. a lesson to be learned here about planning ahead and not expecting someone to be at your beck and call, maybe. Yes. At 10.35 p.m., the Boone County Sheriff's Department's phone ring. Officer Ray McCowan picked up the phone and was greeted by a series of horrific screams, then a female voice pleading with him to come quick before the line went dead. Oh no. This left Officer McCowan quite shaken. The tenor of the screaming made him sure that this wasn't a prank, but the caller had not been able to give him any information about who she was or where she was before the line went dead. Okay. And whatever rudimentary ability that the police had to trace calls in the 1950s wasn't going to be used either, as no one was staffing the telephone board that late at night. Okay. 
So nothing. He did nothing. Well, what are you going to do? Uh, around that same time, Anne Romack called home from her card game night. The weather had transitioned to a serious thunderstorm, and Anne was concerned that the noise may have woken little Gregory up. Sure. No one answered the phone, but Anne figured that Janet had also fallen asleep. Okay. Because it's 1030. You know, in the 50s. Yeah. I don't know what the 50s are like. I'm just going to keep saying that. It was the 50s. <laughs> well, she's out playing cards at that time. They aren't even done. So, but whatever measure of relaxation Ed and Anne had been able to get from a night away from their toddler, it was quickly shattered when they returned home at 1.35 a.m. Whoa. I know. Damn. I haven't been out that late in a while. How old are they? <laughs> it doesn't say it. I would, I would think probably 27, 28. Okay. One of their living room windows had been smashed. The front porch light was on and both the front and back doors were unlocked. Oh, no. Upon entering the living room, they found Janet's dead body lying on the floor beside the piano, surrounded by blood, with a length of cord cut from a nearby iron wrapped around her neck. Her state of undress indicated that she had also been a victim of sexual assault. The only good thing for the Romax was that their story differed from the urban legend version, as little Gregory was fine and still sound asleep upstairs. I, I didn't include this, but like what they normally they would keep a radio playing uh, whenever sure. they left, and so like he would stay asleep, so he might never woke it up if he heard a commotion or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ed immediately called the Boone County Sheriff's Department, and investigators quickly took over the crime scene. It was obvious that Janet had resisted her attacker. There were blood smears and fingerprints throughout the living room and kitchen. The kitchen back door had been left ajar, and police put search dogs on the hunt, who were able to track the assailants? Assailant, yeah. Who were able to track the assailants sent for about a mile before losing the trail. And then adult male footprints were found in the muddy ground underneath the broken living room window. Okay. The police quickly formed the following conclusions. First, the crime scene had been staged. Although the front window had been shattered to make it look like the killer's point of entry, the Venetian blinds, fixtures, and furniture around it were all undisturbed. Hmm. Hmm. The porch light was on, and since Ed Romat had instructed Janet to switch it on if somebody came over... That she knew. Uh-huh. And since the front door was unlocked, people believed the killer had gained entry to the home by the front door. And okay. second, like you just said, Janet probably knew the offender, because Ed had also instructed her to only open the door to somebody that she knew. And the attack seemed to have started in the kitchen and ended up in the living room. So police figured that Janet had willingly let the killer enter the home and seemed to have been comfortable with their presence, at least in the beginning. Did they say what side the glass was broken on? No. Yeah. I think, I pretty sure it was broken in. Okay. I mean, that would be the logical way if you're mm-hmm. like smart and trying to stage it. Yeah, but he just didn't do the rest of the staging, you know. Okay. Lastly, the killer was probably familiar with the layout of the Romax home as the murder weapon, which was the power cord of the iron, was taken from a bedroom next to the living room. So he didn't come with... He didn't come with it. Rope or something. No. Yeah. And he had to go to another room to get it. Okay. A medical examination found that Janet had been raped and beaten. Her time of death was estimated to be between 10 p.m. and midnight, and cause of death was asphyxiation via ligature strangulation. She had defensive wounds, indicating that she had fought back, and there were traces of skin found under her fingernails. Mm. 
And then most intriguingly, she had also suffered multiple tiny round puncture wounds to her head from an unidentified metal object. Hmm. Ooh. We're going to go on a tangent, but not as much as I took you on with Tilly. This was not the first- Or nature's purse. Or nature's purse. (laughs) (laughs) That was a good tangent. That was fun. This was not the first rape and murder of a young girl home alone in Columbia, Missouri. So mm-hmm. on February 5th, 1946, 20-year-old Mary Lou Jenkins had been brutally raped and murdered in a similar manner to Janet. Coincidentally, the Jenkins' home was only two blocks away from the Romax house. Wow. Oh, okay. And Mary Lou had been a home alone that evening. Not a babysitter, but still. Just home alone. Okay. Her father was out of town on a business trip, and her mother was providing nursing care to an elderly couple who lived a couple of houses away. And Mary Lou and her mother came up with a way to alert each other if something weird started happening while they were in the separate homes. And so- Okay. They felt weird or uncomfortable. They were to turn on a light, lift up the shades, and call each other. Seems complicated. Just call them, but whatever. Okay. It seems like a few extra steps, but Seems like a few extra steps. But late that night, Mary Lou's mother noticed that a light was on in her house, and the shades were up. But since she had not received a phone call from Mary Lou, she didn't think anything was wrong. Unfortunately, Hmm. when she arrived home the next morning, she found her daughter's dead body on the living room floor with an extension cord wrapped around her neck. So a cord from the house. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. One of their... This kind of made me laugh, but I felt bad about it. One of their neighbors, Leo Collins, told the police that he had heard blood-curdling screams about 10.15 that night, but he didn't investigate because he assumed the noise came from rabbits, which (laughs) do make a blood-curdling scream, but like, Leo... Leo. I, I'm sorry. I don't know. Like They make some terrible noises. Rabbit Do they? Scream. Oh, yeah. yeah. Scream. Google okay. that. I don't know whether they were just neighborhood rabbits or if like the Jenkins okay. had rabbits. I just, but I've never heard that. It's a sound that you don't think would come from a rabbit. The investigation was very quickly at a dead end. Columbus Police Chief Nate R. Hagen told the press that the police were, quote, groping in the dark with no real clues towards solving the murder. However, this changed two weeks later when 35-year-old Floyd Cochran was arrested on February 23rd. Floyd had been arrested when police were called because he had attempted to commit suicide by drinking lye water. Ugh. I know. Oh, But I know. Uh... Oh, that's awful. I know. He was not in a stable state of mind when arrested, obviously. He told them that he was Ellis Cochran, who was actually his brother, that he, quote, could not make out what was the matter with him, whether he was crazy or whether he was getting over a binge or whether it was something else, quote. And then he thought, quote, the proper thing to do was to incarcerate him until he could determine what the trouble was. Kind of agree with Floyd. Sorry, I just Googled rabbit screaming oh. and that's super fucking disturbing. <laughs> oh, yeah, folks. Yeah. I, I understand Leo, but Leo. A Dr. A.W. Schmidt recommended that Floyd be committed to Fulton State Hospital. Floyd's brother visited him the next morning and agreed, so he went to Floyd's home that afternoon to get Floyd's wife's signature on the commitment papers. Instead, they found Floyd's wife dead in the house from a 12-gauge shotgun wound in her shoulder and neck. Jesus. Wow. Although Police Chief Hagen told the press that there was absolutely no information substantiating any connection between Floyd and Mary Lou, the press were very excited and they with 
Floyd's arrest, they immediately touched off a flood of speculation that there must be some connection between Floyd, his wife is dead, and this girl is dead. Mm -hmm. After being kept awake for two nights in a row and being interrogated without an attorney present, Floyd suddenly made a full confession to Mary Lou's murder and reenacted the crime when officers took him to the Jenkins home. Floyd had hauled trash for the Jenkins before, so there was a bit of an acquaintance, and he said that he showed up at the Jenkins home around 10 or 11 p.m. because Mrs. Jenkins owed him 80 cents and he wanted to collect the debt. (laughs) I didn't actually do my conversion on that one, how much... 80 cents in the 50s, somebody should. Uh, Mary Lou... Six dollars. Yeah. Mary Lou had opened the door, told him that Mrs. Jenkins was not home, and then things got out of hand. Floyd would later recant this confession. Uh, So according to Steve Weinberg, co-founder of the Midwest Innocence Project, false confessions usually happen in two situations. Either officer intimidation forces a confession, or the individual being questioned is mentally compromised. Floyd probably had... $9.25. How much? (laughs) $9.25. Okay. It's not that much, but all right. There is no known record of Cochrane's interrogation, but we can form an idea of how it may have proceeded. Uh, First, we know he had been kept awake for two days and interrogated without the presence of an attorney. Secondly, Floyd was black and accused of killing a white woman. Okay. Mm And a few years later in Columbia, a black man named Jake Bradford would be convicted of raping several white women, but his conviction was eventually overturned when Jake testified that the police officers had told him in no uncertain terms that if he did not confess to the rape, they would, quote, lynch him like they lynched his granddaddy. Oh, Jesus. Oh, my God. And this was not an idle threat, as in 1923, the townspeople of Columbia had lynched James T. Scott, another black man who had been accused of raping a white girl. Yeah. Floyd Cochran was also not 100% there, mentally. He had been rejected from wartime military service, which seems hard to fucking do. Wow. Especially then, yeah. Yeah. Because, quote, Floyd Cochran is mentally disqualified from military service by reason of mental age less than 10 years. Oh. So. Yeah, then he definitely wanted that 925. He might have. That's his, like, allowance money. Yeah. He also had a wife. Well... But still, no, but like, if the army won't take you in a time of war, even to use a cannon fodder, like, I don't have much faith in the army of being very good people, but Jesus. Yeah. He was also currently being treated by Dr. G.A. Bradford. Dr. Bradford had known Floyd all of his life. He hadn't noticed anything wrong with Floyd until about the last five to six months before his wife was killed. And around that time, Floyd told Dr. Bradford that he could not sleep because, quote, he was scared, he was afraid somebody was going to hurt him. And when Hmm. asked, who do you think is going to hurt you? He replied, Hitler. Oh. Mm. Oh. Hitler was dead by this time. Yeah. Dr. Bradford had advised Floyd's wife to put him in an asylum, and Floyd and his wife had actually been in Dr. Bradford's office on the day that she was killed. And Dr. Bradford had given Floyd a sedative at that time, but it apparently didn't quite work out. At the trial, Floyd's grandfather testified that he had spent the evening of February 5th with his grandson, and several neighbors would corroborate the alibi. The jury believed the police officers, though, and Floyd was sentenced to death. 
Floyd's mm-hmm. attorney, Henry Simpson, appealed and argued that the trial had been replete with injustice and errors. Which was not uncommon no. for then. Yeah. And although the Missouri Supreme Court criticized the conduct of the court, it denied the appeal on all counts. And from a modern point of view, it seems obvious that there are numerous reasons why this decision should be overturned today. Mm-hmm. And st- says Steve Weinberg from the Midwest Innocence Project, quote, even if Cochran was guilty as hell, he deserved a fair trial. There's no question mm-hmm. from the information in the appellate decision that Cochran got an unfair trial. The stunts that the prosecution pulled in the courtroom especially. And so one of these stunts was allowing Mary Lou Jenkins' mother to sit in the courtroom right next to the jury, where she was allowed to loudly sob throughout the whole trial. And Floyd's defense attorney argued that just seeing that scene the whole time would inflame and prejudice the jury against Floyd, which it obviously did. Yeah. The Missouri Supreme Court also projected a request that Floyd be allowed a mental review by a commission, but Governor Phil Donnelly delayed Floyd's execution and ordered a mental examination. The execution order was upheld after this examination, found that Floyd knew the difference between right and wrong. Floyd was executed early in the morning of August 16th, 1946. The rape and murder of Mary Lou Jenkins was February 5th, 1946. Oh. Oh. Uh, This was fast. Yeah. A lot faster than things move along now. Jesus. I was like, it's even the same year? I don't even get to the Mm -hmm. trial half the time. Mm -mm. Yeah. I do have last meal. So. Oh, okay. He had a T-bone steak, french fries, scallop corn, cream gravy, bread, butter, cake, and coffee. It's decent. Did it say what kind of cake? Nope. He also did okay. not eat any of it. Oh. oh. This did make me want scallop corn. What is scallop? Wait, I was yeah, thinking, I've had scallop potatoes. I was thinking cream corn, corn, I guess. I'm thinking of like corn casserole, which I fucking love. That's also love. good. Or like a corn pudding. Mmm. I also just like corn, I guess, but. <laughs> yeah. Which is apparently an entirely American thing. I know. Allrecipes.com has it as... Cream corn, eggs. This one has saltine crackers. I don't know. I'm a little confused by that. Butter, paprika, ground pepper. I'd eat that. Basically mix it all together and then you put the cracker crumbs over the top of it to make the casserole. Oh, that might give it like a little crust like that cream corn Mm -hmm. doesn't have. Yeah, like a little crunch to it. Actually sounds really good. Hmm. Anyways, we've learned something new. We have. Cream corn. Or scallop corn is the dish of the day. All right. His death warrant was read at 12.01 a.m. And I'm going to put this on the website, but I found a, like just an entire copy of like the execution orders for the day. So it was like everything that the officers had to do to get ready for the execution, which was interesting oh, okay. to read. Floyd asked for forgiveness for his sins and was coached on how to repeat the Lord's Prayer as he could not remember the words by himself. His last words were Mr. Stewart, meaning Warden Ben B. Stewart. Instead of answering, the warden gave the signal to pull the lever that would cause the sodium cyanide pellets to fall into a tank of sulfuric acid under the execution chair. We're going to get... So this is gas chamber. This is gas chamber. We're going to get into cyanide gas poisoning for a while. Sarah, help me. It might get a little too complicated. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, let's take a detour into science. I'm a little afraid of this one. I did text Hannah earlier that she would have to use crayons for me for this. (laughs) Yeah. And now I'm two tall boy (laughs) ciders deep. So bust out those Crayolas. You know, well, 
We'll just say the words. If you are interested, the internet exists. You can go further into it. Fair enough. Anyway, dropping sodium cyanide pellets into sulfuric acid does the chemical reaction which forms hydrogen cyanide gas and aqueous sodium sulfate. The, when the cyanide gas is inhaled, it can cause a coma with seizures, apnea, and cardiac arrest and death following in a matter of seconds. Okay. How does the death happen? No one has asked, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Okay. Cyanide is an extremely potent cytochrome C oxidase inhibitor. So cytochrome C oxidase is the last enzyme in the respiratory electron transport chain, which is a form of oxidative phosphorus. Phosphorylation. Woo! <laughs> this is a metabolic pathway that uses oxygen, hence the respiratory part, okay. to convert the energy stored in the chemical bonds of glucose into ATP, which is the form of energy that your body cells can actually use. Okay. And this oxidative form releases a lot more energy than metabolism done in the absence of oxygen. So for... Which is why we breathe air. oxygen in our lungs instead of work like anaerobic yeasts and things that could survive, but they grow a lot more slowly. Okay. Giardia doesn't have the electron transport chain. The They don't have mitochondria. Nope. And so I'm still not 100% sure how they survive, but they're doing it. They're doing it, the little darlings. Do it. It's way less ATP <laughs> than shit we everywhere. need. But, <laughs> you know, it's very important for all of us aerobes to be able to do this metabolism, to have enough ATP for our cells to, like, survive. The cyanide itself binds to the center of the cytochrome C oxidase enzyme, and it blocks the movement of electrons from one end of the enzyme to the other. All that really means is if these electrons can't flow through the enzyme, then the next step, which is the ATP creation, that can't happen. So if that can't happen, you're not making enough energy to survive. Okay. One more thing. Cyanide poisoning is a form of histotoxic hypoxia. Wow. Histo being a medical prefix that means tissue, so tissue toxic, and hypo being a medical prefix meaning less than normal, hypoxia, less oxygen than normal. And so what that means is that the oxygen is able to be delivered through the cells and tissues, it flows in the bloodstream just fine, no issues there, but once it gets to the cells themselves, they can't utilize that oxygen because the process is being blocked by the binding of cyanide. Okay. Stopped. So that's that. Cyanide poisoning can be reversed, but that doesn't come up in the death chamber, obviously. <laughs> you can also make hydrogen cyanide when you burn polyurethane. Yes. And other, like, other similar plastics. So don't burn plastic. It's bad. Don't burn plastic. It's bad. Anywho, that's the science behind it. I was interested. I know we have science listeners. To be honest, Wikipedia doesn't make it sound that bad on the surface. <laughs> You know, death quickly, whatever. But there have definitely been botched executions following cyanide gas. It is visible, which I think is very interesting. And mm -hmm. the condemned is usually advised to take several deep breaths to speed their descent into unconsciousness. However, Ugh. even though they're unconscious, the condemned will often convulse and drool and may also urinate, defecate, and vomit. Well, their whole body is failing and their brain's just like, no, 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 like, no, 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 no. And so one well-known case is the execution of Jimmy Lee Gray on September 2nd, 
1983, where Jimmy Lee did not die immediately, and the officials ended up clearing the viewing room as Jimmy Lee continued to convulse. Ooh. And then in 2007, David Buck, an attorney specializing in death penalty cases, said, quote, Jimmy Lee Gray died banging his head against a steel pole in the gas chamber while reporters counted his moans. Oh my god. So I thought about maybe doing Jimmy Lee Gray as a future episode, but after a quick moment of future research, I've come to the conclusion of fuck him. Okay. He was sentenced to death for the kidnapping, sodomizing, and murder of a three-year-old girl, and I do not feel bad for him. No. No. And what's Mm-mm. done is done. He dead. Yeah. He needed He needed. I don't actually mind sure. the, yeah. the moans and the banging. Nope. Nope. Fuck off. Fuck you. Mm-mm. The gas chamber has been used in relatively few states, which I was kind of surprised by, but I guess maybe you've got to have the infrastructure to do it. Sure. Uh, It was formerly used in Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico, North Carolina, and Oregon, but not anymore. And then there are six states, Arizona, California, Maryland, Mississippi, and Wyoming. That's five. Whatever. (laughs) We're not counting well tonight. Clearly, we're not the best at math, especially on a double record. Night, <laughs> I don't know what's so. happening. So, at least those five, maybe one more, will still authorize lethal gas as a secondary method of execution in cases where lethal injection cannot be administered if the condemned committed their crime before a certain date or the condemned can choose to die in the gas chamber. And we did talk about this in the execution exactly. episode, which I don't remember what episode that number it was right now not top of my head i went through the list of like what states do what methods and i so i think we covered that so go back through our library yeah and check out executions and if you want to hear about lethal injection i yes. did that early on which is why i had to do lethal gas too mm-hmm. the last person executed in the gas chamber in the united states was walter legrand who killed someone in the process of committing armed robbery. So, yeah, whatever. He was executed in Arizona on March 3rd, 1999. So that was the last time the gas chamber's been used, but it's still an option in five to six states. Sorry about that. (laughs) And then in October 2010, the governor of New York signed a bill rendering gas chambers illegal for use by humane societies and other animal shelters, which I am very happy to hear. Yeah. Yeah. People can be monsters, but animals. Fuck this sodomizer of a three-year-old, but like, oh, sweet puppers. Yeah, it's not their fault. Yeah. So anyway, back to Floyd. Okay. In Floyd's case, his head sagged forward about nine after about 90 seconds of exposure to the gas, and he was declared dead at 12.12 a.m., which I would assume is probably more like the time when the chamber was purged with air and the remnant of the cyanide gas was, like, expelled so the chamber could be safe to open so they could actually check, but whatever. Where do they put it? So apparently they purge it out with air into the atmosphere and then any re- remnant gas is neutralized with anhydrous ammonia. What's that? Another chemical they drop in the chamber. Okay. So then they're just releasing HCN into the atmosphere. I actually don't know where it's going. They just say they purge the chamber with air. Maybe they purge it into a chamber that has ammonia in it. Ah, I would hope so. Yeah, they should neutralize it all. Neutralize it. Otherwise, do they send it to the other death row inmates? Oh, they just pass it down the line. (laughs) 
Just like no <laughs> microdosing. No, because Taste of here's what you're going to get. One of the yeah. first lethal gas, they tried pumping it into the chamber instead of having it in the bucket right underneath them, and it did not work very well. So they need to be like right sitting on top of it. I would hope that the gas is just pumped into another area to be neutralized. I'm hoping it's sent down the line. It's hard to say. Never can tell with prisons because they let, you know, prison guards do IVs, but... Sure, yeah. Anyway, and then there you have to be really careful with the bodies, too, as you move it because there could be trapped pockets of cyanide gas. And it's not that much, actually. Ugh. The dosage is pretty low. Wow. And I honestly don't know if a prison would be prepared to actually have an antidote. The antidote turns it into vitamin B12 in the body, though, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Because cyano- cyanocobalamin, right, has cyanide as part of its structure. Okay. I actually saw there was like six different ways. And that's ways. the other word for B12. Yeah. There's several different ways, but the one that's most commonly used now is hydroxocobalamin. That makes sense. Which reacts with the cyanide to form cyanocobalamin, which is basically just B12. So it's like taking too much of a vitamin like, hey. B12 and you just pee it out. Your kidneys are like, Your okay, I don't like, know what to do with whoa, this. but okay. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? But okay. There's other methods, but they're not as efficient. So. No, and some of them can have kind of bad byproducts too. You don't want to eat. Yeah, yeah. Better than cyanide, but still. Anywho, it wasn't until 2002 that the U.S. Supreme Court decided that sentencing intellectually disabled individuals to death is unconstitutional, which, duh, because like I said before, if the U.S. military, which has very few morals, isn't willing to use them (laughs) as cannon fodder, then we probably, the state probably shouldn't get to put them to death either. Yeah. And even the prosecutor in this case had second thoughts about Floyd's conviction and death, but it was too late for Floyd. The process went super fast. (sighs) Honestly, the prosecutor started having doubts by like 1950, but it was still too late. They also had doubts because young women in Colombia continue to be the target of sexual assaults, even though the quote unquote perpetrator had been put to death. Gee, that makes sense. Weird. And this activity escalated in late 1949. A few days before Halloween, a 16-year-old girl was babysitting when a man in a white homemade mask broke into the house and sexually (laughs) assaulted her. This line for centers made me burp a lot. Wow. That was a good one. So that was a few days before Halloween. Then on November 29th, 1949, one block away from where the first victim had been assaulted, 18-year-old Sally Johnson was home alone when a man in a white homemade mask broke into the house and attempted to assault her. Sally was able to fight off her attacker and able to get him to flee the home. So she actually... Yeah, Sally. Yeah, she... Yeah. Traumatized, but not sexually assaulted. Good fight, girl. I know, she got him. Good job. Since he didn't get what he wanted from Sally, the man got more brazen the next day when he just walked straight up to a car on a lover's lane while brandishing a handgun and forced the couple out of the car. The couple were both students from the University of Missouri, I believe is what the university is in Columbia. Uh, so the man was wearing a white hood. He tied up and robbed the male partner before walking the female partner a bit away before sexually assaulting her and then running away. Ugh. Wasn't that the Broken Hearts Killers? There's also the Texarkana, like... Okay, there's, a, there's like multiple. There's multiple, okay. like, Lover's Lane type of people. The Lover's Lane is actually, yeah. seems like a, a weird, like, he got a little desperate because he normally would go into places where the woman was alone yeah. in a house. Okay. And this one... The lover's lane, a man was there. It changed things up a bit. This all actually goes back to Jake Bradford, who I talked about earlier, the one that 
was threatened with lynching during his interrogation. Mm-hmm. He was arrested on December 4th, 1949, while being caught in the act of being a peeping Tom, which isn't a good start. No. It usually doesn't go well, lead to anything good, but he was at that point just peeping Tom. But after about a week in jail and under intense interrogation, Jake ended up confessing to raping the 16-year-old in October and attempting to rape Sally Johnson, although Sally Johnson was unable to positively ID him. And Jake would eventually recant the confession, saying that they were given under extreme duress, you know. However, once Jake Bradford was in custody, the reports of prowling and attempted rape ceased, which left the police confident that they had the right man. That is, they did feel confident until March 18th, 1950. They only got about four months of confidence, three months of confidence, uh, when they were called to the scene of Janet Christman's brutal rape and murder. Maybe it wasn't a black man after all, especially <laughs> as there was a white guy who set about making himself seem extremely suspicious immediately after the murder. So on March 19th, the day after, the Romax were obviously still quite traumatized about the crime that had taken place under their roof. Yeah. While dealing with all of that, Ed got a phone call from his friend Robert Mueller, which was also the other family that she babysat for. And that she wasn't available for. She wasn't available. Okay. Robert was calling to offer to pop in and help clean up the mess. Ed Mm. thought this was strange, as he didn't think that news of the murder had spread yet. And then Robert decided to make things weirder by telling Ed that he didn't have an alibi for the previous night, but he didn't have any scratches. (laughs) Uh, It's unclear whether Robert straight up volunteered this information or if Ed had asked him. But in any case, the autopsy results with the skin samples and whatnot under Janet's fingernails had definitely been not made public yet and may not have even been done yet. It was like early the next morning. Jesus. I don't have any scratches. Couldn't be me. They're like, no alibi. (laughs) But don't worry about it. On the surface, Robert Mueller seemed like an exemplary American citizen. Of course he did. Of course he did. He was a 27-year-old World War II veteran who had distinguished himself as a captain in the Army Air Corps. When the war ended, he received an honorable discharge and moved back to Columbia, Missouri, where he got married, started a family, and resumed his friendship with Ed Romack as the two of them had gone to school together. Okay. He worked as a tailor, and many people remember him for dressing well and for always carrying a mechanical pencil in his front shirt or jacket pocket. Nerd. Fair. (laughs) Why Ed remained friends with Robert was unclear. Robert was described as hypersexual. He frequently spoke to Ed about trying to get a virgin and wanted Ed to come with him to Hinkson Creek, which was a popular local spot for student picnics to, quote, get a nice young girl. But he was married. He was married. Because he was looking for a babysitter. Hey, I kids. Fucking pervert. Yeah. And Janet and Robert were acquainted as Janet had babysat for him before. Mm-hmm. And Ed also said that Robert would make gross comments to him about Janet's newly developed hips and breasts. She was 13. Oh, for fuck's sakes. Ed's wife, Anne, also did not like Robert and felt uncomfortable when he was around. 
And the day before Janet's murder, Robert had been visiting the Romax and ended up helping Anne hem a dress. Uh, I thought it was kind of weird. He was a weird. tailor. He was a tailor. Oh, okay. Yeah. But Robert's help mostly consisted of trying to grope her breast. Oh, for fuck's sakes. And so Anne made a formal report to the police after Janet's murder, describing Robert Mueller as a man who, quote, doesn't use words, he uses his hands. Ew. He doesn't ask permission, he just takes Uh what he wants. Yeah, that's disgusting. That's gross. And the circumstantial evidence continued to flow in. Robert Mueller had actually attended the card night with the Romax and their friends, but after about a few hours, he excused himself, claiming that he had to go meet a doctor who was going to treat his son. This was about 10 o'clock-ish. Robert was gone for about two hours before he returned to the party. The police questioned Robert's doctor, and no surprise, the doctor had not gone to the Mueller residence that night, nor had he seen Robert at all. Where was his wife? No idea. She never comes up. Oh, interesting. Or she might have had the card night. Or no, she's probably at home with the child because she could get a babysitter. Yeah. Probably just glad he's not around. I know. She's like, oh God, a night without fucking Robert. <laughs> Ed Romack also said that Robert really wanted to talk about the crime, and he had his theories, and so Robert thought that breaking a window to climb into the home would have been too loud and noticeable, and instead, it would have been much easier to just knock on the door and tell Janet that Ed sent me here to get some poker chips. Mm -hmm. Uh, okay. And, according to Ed, Robert had even once said that he might have murdered Janet and forgotten about it. What? <laughs> the fuck? What? So, <laughs> in May 1950, law enforcement was ready to talk to Robert Mueller. Wait, and this wasn't the guy whose mindset was believed to be that of a 10-year-old? No, but Jesus Christ, right? Oh, yeah. Although the 10-year-old, I wasn't this I wasn't this gross. No, not gross, but like dumb. Dumb. Yeah. Dumb. He's very dumb, but yeah. <laughs> Uh, so law enforcement wanted to talk to Robert Mueller. They got a little weird with it, though. And so they enlisted Ed Romack for help. Ed picked up Robert under the pretense of driving over to a card game. And Robert usually kept score, so it was likely that he would bring his mechanical pencil with him. Which they figured was what made all of those little marks oh, on her head. Okay. Ooh. And having a metal mechanical pencil, I can imagine it exactly. Okay, yeah. I do have a metal mechanical pencil. I do too. It's my favorite. It's such a nice pencil. And now you will never look at it the same way. <sighs> I actually did stab myself in the leg with it once, so accidentally. So it will puncture. Yeah. There's not there's not no worry there. So instead of going to a card party, they ended up at a deputy's farmhouse outside the city limits where the police interrogated Robert throughout the night. They didn't get a confession, uh, but the next morning they took Robert to Jefferson City where he took and passed a polygraph. Not much left to do here, so the police were forced to release him. The evidence still strongly pointed in Robert's direction, and Judge W.M. Dinwiddle felt there was enough there to bring together a grand jury to decide if there was enough evidence to charge Robert Mueller with the murder of Janet Chrisman. What I haven't mentioned so far is that there was some jurisdictional interference going on during this investigation. So the murder took place outside of city limits and thus should have been under the jurisdiction of the Boone County Sheriff's Department. However, the Columbia Police Department 
also jumped right in. Chief Pond and the Columbia PD were mostly forced on calming public fears, and they were dealing... The town of Columbia already had a lot to deal with, so they were understandably freaked out. Yeah. He assigned all his officers to 12-hour shifts. He deputized local businessmen to patrol the streets after dark. He hired four new patrolmen, and most interestingly, he changed the emergency number from 3132 to 112, which actually made a very big difference in the age of rotary phones. Yeah. 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 And then Sheriff Powell and the Boone County Sheriff's Department were mostly focused on the investigation. However, they okay. they did not appreciate the Columbia PD coming in on their territory. And there was oh, definitely Jesus. a lot of underlying tension between the two departments. So the, Okay, man egos. I know. So this tension probably contributed to the weird way that Sheriff Powell interrogated Robert Mueller. Sheriff Powell did not request an arrest warrant from the prosecuting attorney or even tell the prosecuting attorney about their suspect and their plan to interrogate him. Allegedly, this was because the prosecuting attorney had a close relationship with Chief Pond of the Columbia PD. Mm. Oh, Lord. So when the grand jury issued its report on June 17th, instead of indicting Robert Mueller, they ferociously criticized the Columbia PD and the Boone County Sheriff's Department for their petty jealousies and total lack of cooperation in investigating the homicide. Jesus. Great job, guys. Yeah, way to fuck it up. Toxic. Super fucked Mm -hmm. up. Robert Mueller, never arrested. (gasps) Never? He actually ended up suing Chief Powell for civil rights violations relating to his interrogation in the farmhouse. (laughs) He did lose this lawsuit. There's like a tiny bit of justice. Soon after, he joined the Air Force. And moved away from Columbia, Missouri. The local sex crimes that had started in 1946 abruptly stopped when Robert left town. Yeah. He died, a free man, at the age of 83 in Santa Clara County, California on July 5th, 2006. Fuck you. Uh, The Romacks moved to Idaho Falls, Idaho, where they remained haunted by the case. Yeah. Uh, Anne passed away in the late, in the 1980s. Ed eventually remarried and died in 2016 at the age of 93. And little Gregory grew up to be just fine. The Chrismans remained in Columbia, Missouri and continued running their restaurant until Janet's father died uh, at 60 years old. And then Janet's mother moved to Kansas City and lived there until she passed away in 2009 without ever really getting any sort of justice. Yeah, there's no justice for her. Also, to go back to Mary Lou Jenkins, that case is considered solved and that Floyd Cochran was the perpetrator. (sighs) No. Uh... Mm -mm. Mm -hmm. So in 2013, a team of documentary journalists visited Columbia, Missouri to collect stories and opinions on Janet's murder to potentially revive interest in this cold case. Unfortunately, it seems very unlikely that this crime will ever be definitively solved. All of the evidence gathered, fingerprints, footprints, skin, and blood samples have all been lost, as have all the notes from the both the Boone County Sheriff's Department and the Columbia PD involving this investigation. Seriously? Yeah. Uh, <sighs> Quick astrology thing. I'm just going to lean in here and just say that I think Robert Mueller murdered Janet Christman. Yeah. Feels, <laughs> feels safe. What gave you that idea? Uh, fucking, fuck if I know. Really <laughs> reaching here, guys. I found out that his birth date was February 7, 1923. 
And I also learned that his middle name was Pember. Pember? <laughs> I, I'm just like, sure, what? Robert Pember Mueller. That's a neat name, but not for Pember. him. It reminds me of Pember yeah. from Pride and Prejudice. It's unfortunate that it's that it's his because it's kind of, yeah, it's unique and interesting. But yeah. I'm betting it's probably like a family name because my, my dad's middle name is Walleen, which isn't a name, but it is my grandma's maiden name. Okay. Huh. Yeah. That wasn't uncommon, though, to use the mother's maiden name as the middle name. Yeah. But in any case, we have another Aquarius. Yeah. And I'm going to start with my normal disclaimer that no matter what it sounds like, Aquarius is actually an air sign, not a water sign. Yeah. No aqua here. I'm really annoyed (laughs) by the naming of this one. Yeah. And I normally love a good Aquarius. Like... I don't. um, I mean, I'm fine with them, but they're just... (sighs) I looked up compatibility. Capricorn and Aquarius, not super great. But I I do like them because they are very outspoken, interesting mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. They're also very interesting to have conversations with. Yes. And they're independent, original, comfortable to the point of eccentricity in some cases. But I usually find that fun. Yeah. But we have an unevolved Aquarius. Yeah. Which could cling more to their intellectual and logical side to protect themselves from emotions so they can come across as a bit robotic. They do have a lot. They do have some similar feelings about emotions as Capricorns do, which is probably why we're not super compatible because we're dead in for each other. We wouldn't push each other anyway, like to actually try to be real. Um, They also try so hard to make sure that people know that they are special and unique. Yeah, it's the I'm special to their own detriment. Yeah, yeah. So it comes across cringy, annoying, shocking, like... Yeah. It's too much. That's the Aquarius that I know. It's so I'm just like, too much. dude, calm down. Like we, Go take a nap. We get it. <laughs> and they are also very comfortable with being alone, but this can go way too far to the point where they cease trying to understand others at all and lose their empathy. So. See, everyone thinks Pisces is the space case, but I say it's no, Aquarius, Aquarius. And Pisces is just trying to get away from the space case. <laughs> I think that's what I said before, is that Aquarius is a space case, but they're fine with keeping it to themselves. Whereas, like, Pisces are dreamy, but they want to share it. Yeah. Yeah. And as a Capricorn, I like the logical, independent part of it, but there's more to life. Not all Aquarii are logical or independent, though. No. True. (laughs) The ones that I know are further from that than I, yeah. And the ones that I know, I think, are just, like, actually super fun. Like, Mm -hmm. they are a little eccentric, maybe, but, like, they're the ones I could talk about aliens with and stuff. And, like... And Bigfoot. And Bigfoot. It's all good stuff, but, like... (sighs) Yeah. Oh, damn. That tasted like soup. Ew. (laughs) Not cherry lime? No. (laughs) The soup sloop is too strong. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, uh, say Robert Mueller definitely came across Douche as and like just like really didn't take into consideration anyone around him, but just said whatever he wanted to say, and also probably didn't have a bunch of didn't have a ton of empathy and didn't feel like that was something that he needed because he was guilty as fuck. Yes, we're all on the same page here. So yep, I had this folder called "Murder of Janet Crispin," but the episode will be Robert Mueller Aquarius. <laughs> that's all i have okay i do have a teeny bit of astrology and a quote Woo! so on january 24th is when this episode airs mars enters capricorn hey all right 
And so Mars represents like our drive, our ambition, our passion, our energy. And so in Capricorn, this is a very powerful placement as Capricorns exhibit and exude really powerful strength. So we will have this really deliberate and persistent energy during this time and it will be a good time to consider our future and look at the consequences before we take action. The downside to Mars being in Capricorn is a little bit of rigidness. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> your plan of attack will probably be very logical. Right. And we don't want to fear but... from it. We have we want to do this thing. But it also means <laughs> that you're not gonna have a whole lot of like Adaptability? Adaptability, yeah, and and maybe the attention to the the more minute, fun details because they don't fit in the plan. Yeah. Thank God I have that Virgo. Yeah, a little dirt for your dirt. (laughs) (laughs) Dirt and dirt and dirt and water. I also very quickly looked up a quote since we were talking about Aquarius. I will close it out. So I don't even fucking know. We're on episode (laughs) number two of the night. I've had two very delicious ciders. I'm feeling very good. If you would just like to reach out to us to talk to us about pretty much anything, food, cats, true crimes. Badgers. Yeah, anything. Honestly, just reach out to us. We're on Twitter at True Trine, on Instagram at True Trine. True Crime Trine. But we like, we let you know what we're dealing with right now. On Instagram at True Crime Trine. On Facebook at TCT Podcast. We also subsequently have True Crime Trine Podcast. Check that out. We don't really post to there, but it's there. And then <laughs> you can email us directly. This is this is the money. If you want a sticker, email us. TrueCrimeTrine yeah. at gmail.com. And then check out our amazing website. It's really quite beautiful at www.TrueCrimeTrine.com. We'll post an image of our True Crime Trine sticker on Sarah's water bottle to make you all jealous and want one. Yes. Yeah. I've had people like look at this and be like, oh, what podcast is that? I'm like, it's mine. mine, (laughs) I talk on this one. So, you know. (laughs) That's kind of fun. I may be biased, but I think we're pretty fucking awesome. I enjoy us. Yes, I do too. And then Hannah, you said you had an Aquarii quote? Yes. As follows. There is not an Aquarius woman in the world who wants to be told what to do. (laughs) That makes sense. I like it. Yeah. My quote is just about true crime, but it's from James Rudick, whoever the fuck that is, (laughs) I don't know. But quote, an unhappy woman with access to weed killer had to be watched carefully. End quote. Yeah, she'll get you. And she bury you in the yard like Dorothea. <laughs> and treat all the weeds around like you'll be a perfect garden. You'd be a perfect garden. So think about that, folks. Music for our podcast was handcrafted by the talented and creative minds of Mike Warren and Pete Ortega. Our artwork was imagined and skillfully designed by the lovely Sarah Guest. As for production, well, they call me post-production. Show notes are available upon request. Just email 
truecrimetrine@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Join us again next week for another tantalizing episode.